0: Welcome to Always Take Notes. In this episode, we speak to Tom Standage, who is the deputy editor of The Economist and an author. Uh, We visited him in the very shiny new offices of The Economist in London, and we were speaking in a a very aggressively air-conditioned room, which is the reason for the slight hum.
1: We spoke to Tom about The Economist's DNA, about what makes it unique as a publication and about his own role as deputy editor in taking that DNA in new and innovative directions from Snapchat to virtual reality. And we also spoke about the no byline policy of The Economist and what that means in terms of the writing process there.
0: We found the episode completely fascinating to make. Tom Standage was really um, interesting and um, incredibly incisive about so many issues. So we hope you enjoy listening to it. Thanks very much. Hello and welcome to Always Take Notes. We are here today with Tom Standage, the deputy editor of The Economist and author of The Many books, I don't know exactly how many.
2: Six, I think. Six? Six that are just by me, anyway. Yeah,
0: what's the most recent one?
2: Uh, Writing on the Wall in 2013, but I edited an anthology for The Economist last year, which you could also argue is by me, sort of. (laughs) We will, (laughs) that's what we'll argue. So, author of
0: of now seven.
2: Well, I don't know, I mean, anthologies don't count. (laughs) Let's just say six, shall
0: we? Many books. Uh, Thank you so much for uh, agreeing to, to meet with us in your lovely new offices. I, of course, was familiar with the old offices and I'm very impressed by the new ones. that even have real plants. I'm glad
2: you like it. And listeners should like imagine an actual modern office where everything works and it's all wonderful and lovely. And isn't a tower. And it's not exactly lots of different floors stacked on top of each other, but we're all on one floor now. Yeah. But the old neighborhoods, uh, so the old floors are reflected in the neighborhoods of this. Of this. So the, the culture is sort of uh, propagated into the new building.
0: They're not, you're not calling them communities?
2: No, we're not, because we actually have a ban on the word community in the style guide of The Economist, so oh, right. I think pretty much <laughs> <laughs> it's certainly a word where we think you you're probably you probably ought to be using a different word, I think.
1: Great. Well, Tom, to start off with, can you just explain a bit about how you got to The Economist and what your route through the magazine to what you do now is?
2: Yeah, I've been here um, 19 years today, in fact, because we're recording this on the 1st of September, and I started on the 1st of September, 1998, and... Um, My route into journalism, straightforwardly, my ticket into journalism was the internet. So I studied computer science at Oxford. I went to Oxford because I was obsessed with AI as a teenager. And I was mucking around with programs to hold conversations and write poems and things like that, which were terrible. And I thought, I'll go to university. and I'll learn all about how AI is really done. And the big problem was that AI didn't work in the 80s. And I discovered this, and it was all a bit depressing. And I left university. And um, one of the things I'd been doing while at university was mucking around on the internet a bit and uh, so I did various sort of um, computer related uh, jobs for a couple of years but then I started pitching pieces about the internet to pe- the papers and to various magazines and I ended up um, working at The Guardian um, on their supplement their internet supplement and all the papers started these internet mm-hmm. supplements. Wasn't so there a magazine called The Internet at that time? Uh, as well? There was a magazine called Net Magazine right. um, which I also wrote for and, um, and in those days, you could sell articles um, of the form, um, here is an article about X and the internet. So you'd do like, I remember I did God on the internet, um, <laughs> and uh, uh, you know how, how the vicar was using the internet, all this sort of stuff. I mean, it was all looking for God on the internet. I mean, you know, there were various, you could pretty much do anything at that point, because nobody really had people who could write about this in a sort of you know, informed way, and we were all making it up. Anyway, so, um, I was at The Guardian for a year doing that, and then The Telegraph set up its version of that supplement. Um, So I went to work at The Telegraph, and I was there for two years. Um, But it was pretty clear to me even then that there was not going to be a long-term future in this, because the reason those supplements existed was that there was advertising money to be had from internet companies, from ISPs, from modem manufacturers, if you can believe it. Um, And, you know, that was not a a long-term Uh, You know, newspapers did not have telephone supplements. Uh, They did have car supplements, but you could see that the Internet was going to be a big society-changing thing, and the way it was going to be covered was going to be everywhere, not in a sort of Internet section. Um, so I started preparing for my exit after being at the Telegraph for a year. I started writing everything in Economist style uh, because I thought that's where I want to go. And I also wanna get away from writing about God on the Internet, whatever. Um, and a, a job came up at just the right time at The Economist on the science desk. So I went to The Economist in '98 on the science desk. And it was lovely because I spent two years just writing about space probes and semiconductors and material science and maybe the odd computer virus. But I s- kind of stopped writing about just the Internet all the time and got to use my training as an engineer and in physical sciences and apply that to science journalism and, and, uh, and so on. And I've been here ever since because it's just a great place to work.
0: Well, um, from you know, having worked your way up, you're now deputy editor... Could you talk us a little bit more through um, how the structure works? Obviously that you're not the only deputy editor and what exactly, how, you, how the roles are, sure. d- are divvied up?
2: Yeah, so we have two deputy editors, uh, me and Ed Carr. And essentially, um, Ed is responsible for uh, running the paper and, and uh, you know, Zannie is the editor-in-chief, oversees all of this. But essentially, um, Ed uh, handles the, uh, the weekly output and I handle the digital output and they run on different sort of timescales. So, I mean, the digital output happens every day. We have things like espresso, which is a daily product. We have video, we have audio, we have the social team. We have web-based output, which is you know, produced by the same journalists, um, but goes out on the web on a, on a sort of different um, production cycle. So, uh, so essentially, that's the division of labor. Uh, between us. And then the other thing I'm responsible for is sort of um, keeping an eye on new things that are coming along. So I also have a team called the New Product Development, the Stroke Media Lab, uh, which is based in New York. And we sort of look at things like, you know, two years ago we said VR, we should probably look at that. Let's see how difficult it is to do VR. Let's see what The Economist's tone of voice would be like in VR. So we did some VR. We've been mucking around recently with voice assistants. Uh, One of the nice things that we have at The Economist is we have an audio edition where every single article in each week's issue is recorded um, in parallel in lots and lots of radio studios like this one um, so that you can listen to the whole edition and that's a very popular feature among a a very hardcore group of subscribers Uh, but it means we have very high quality audio of all of those articles and so it's a very natural thing to imagine well you could say to your voice assistant, you know, Alexa, um, ask The Economist for the latest on Syria. And it would find that, and in fact, I've just been, you know, looking at, we've built a prototype that does just that. So these are the sorts of things that, you know, I'm also keeping an eye on. And some of them turn into products and some of them don't. And um, similarly, rebooting our video strategy, um, you know, Espresso was one of my ideas. So I'm also kind of looking forward to where we ought to be in a couple of years, and and sort of developing our strategy and our approach to those sorts of things.
1: And could you uh, describe a little bit how you see the kind of DNA of The Economist? What's its, or it's USP to use another, TLA. Um, What's its, uh, what makes The Economist and what makes it different to other places?
2: So This was a question we explicitly set out to answer in, I think it was 2014, because um, we didn't want to have a sort of uh, flowery mission statement because that's a very uneconomist thing to do. But um, certainly, when it comes to evaluating new products, opportunities, and new platforms, and you know things like VR or daily app or whatever, to actually have written down what our USP is and what our approach is, so that you can test new ideas against that, is very useful. So what we came up with was five things. Um, the first is that The Economist is a trusted filter on the week's event. So we filter stuff down and we, we make it finishable and uh, we package it up for you. Um, I'm going to have to remember all of them now. <laughs> uh, the second one is that we are um, obsessed with the forces that shape the future. Um, so we, sort of, we want to be a, a guide to the future. We want to help you understand what's going on in the world. Uh, not just this is what's happened but you know here are the big trends you know the trend spotting side of things that's a that's a big part of what we do the third is that there's an advocacy piece in all of this um, and there always has been we were founded originally to be a journal to campaign for free trade and the abolition of the corn laws and the corn laws were abolished but it wasn't i'm sorry to say because of the brilliant journalism of the economist it was because of the potato famine Um, but ultimately you know free trade is something we were founded to campaign for and still do and we've campaigned for lots of other things so gay marriage legalisation of drugs and so on so there's a campaigning aspect to it Um, so that's the third thing the fourth thing is that we do all of this with a global perspective I sometimes call it the view from the moon Um, so we're, we're based in London obviously but we sort of treat everything with a um, what does this mean globally? We don't have a sort of vested interest in. I mean, the British papers will do something like, you know, I, I get these stories pitched to me all the time. Here's a feisty British startup that's taking on the Chinese at their own game, and the Daily Telegraph will love a story like that, but the Economist would not because we just don't really care whether a British startup is beating the Chinese or not. Now, if they've got an interesting technology that you know has broader implications, then that's a different matter. But we're not kind of invested in Britain winning or anything like that. Uh, so it's a global, a global view. Um, and then the fifth thing is that we do all of this at a level, a level of quality and excellence that um, we can charge serious amounts of money for it. Um, so if you look at those five things, there are other publications that kind of tick some of those boxes. But we don't think anyone else ticks all five. And if you then look at, you know, we were starting a daily product for smartphones. What does that mean? Well, it means it needs to be forward looking, needs to be opinionated, it needs to be finishable. Um, it, you know, it needs to be something you pay for because our business model is a subscription model. Um, it's not based around, you know, it's not reliant on advertising. Um, and it has to be, you know, it has to have a global perspective. So, again, there are lots of different daily products. and Some of them are sort of more British-focused and some of them are more US-focused, and we're trying to do a, a global one. So that was a very useful checklist to have for all the subsequent products um, that, that we come up with. You know, how economisty is it? How many we have we've got to have at least, you know, four out of five of those boxes ticked? It's
1: interesting because you um, look at this externally. It seems that a lot of the the metrics you're are very, as you say, very forward-looking things. But also, you know, the Economist has has been this hugely successful print archetype. You know, certainly, I my immediate association with the Economist is this this copy that we've got on the desk in front of us. Right. But how do you how what are the challenges of of translating something that has been such a successful form in one media over to this? Both to to the future in general and to all these different
2: platforms. I know what you mean. I think there's... I think it's... To be honest, we don't really... The product we make is actually, you'll notice that those five things that I said that define the economy the, word, the words print and digital did not appear. And it's because actually what's characteristic about what we do is that we bundle it up in a sort of finishable package. And you can do that in print, and print is a very logical way of doing it, but you can actually do that digitally as well. So we talk about finishability. You never finish the internet, it goes on forever. You never finish Facebook, it just goes on scrolling. Um, you can never actually finish the New York Times because it's so long and there's so much of it. So you never get that feeling of, oh, I've got to the end. And um, that was something that, you know, one of the things that the print edition of The Economist gives you is the sort of permission when you've flicked through it and decided what not to read and what to read. You've kind of got permission to, okay, I'm caught up. I can go do something else. And this is, I think, quite a widespread... This is something that's quite common now. You know, the BuzzFeed app, you scroll through it, it says you're all caught up. Mm-hmm. Um, that was it? Yahoo News Digest app that they're just killing now. But Nick Deloisio, who built that, um, I, I had lunch with him, and we were talking about this, you can never finish the internet thing, and he, he was the, the person behind that. And one of the things it does is, you know, you're all done or something at the end. I can't remember what it is, but it's, it's sort of giving you that... Um, sense of victory that you've completed, you've caught up, rather than the feeling that you're being overwhelmed by, by you know, a constant stream of information. So really what we're selling is, well, I think there are two things happening here. One is we're sort of selling the, ant- the antidote to information overload. And the more channels there are and the more different sources there are and the more confusing the news environment gets, the more demand there is for something like what we do. And the second thing is we're really, it's a very simple business model. We essentially, people pay us to save them time. So they say, "Look, I could go out and read the internet for a whole day and try and figure out what 's going on you know in Syria or whatever, or I could just trust the economist to, to figure it out for me and distill it all down to me for me in a form that I can actually get through um, so essentially that's that 's quite a simple model, and I think that 's why it 's effective it 's not hard to explain and you know if you think about it like that it 's sort of obvious in retrospect so none of this is actually dependent on print and we don 't have a model that is We have a a completely agnostic, media agnostic um, model in the sense that we offer people a subscription for, I think it's in dollars, it's like $150 for print only, $150 for digital only, or $180 for both. And we do similar versions of those pricings in other other currencies. Um, What that means is, um, in practice, about half of subscribers take both, and about a quarter take just one or the other. The interesting thing is the people who take just print skew younger. We think this is because they are students who want the badge, the kind of brand association of having a physical copy to carry around. The digital-only subscribers skew older, and we think that's because they want to be able to make the type bigger on iPads and Kindles and things like that. <laughs> um, but, but you know, as I say, about a bit more than fifty percent take both, and so we're not trying to sort of push people towards either consuming in print or consuming in digital. We'll go on making print printed digital as long as people want it, and I think we'll be one of the last print publications still standing. Now, if you look at the economics of a daily paper, it's very, very different. The main cost for a daily is printed distribution. So, the, the Financial Times did this very interesting thing in the in the financial crisis. Um, they basically doubled the price of their print edition as soon as the crisis hit and what that did was it incentivized everyone to move over to digital and it was very very effective and they now have more digital subscribers way more than they do print subscribers which meant that they didn't have to you know, spend all that money printing and distributing quite so many newspapers, and it's the same with you know other newspapers. I think the New York Times, for example, will go down to being a weekly in print, and then you know publishing on the web the rest of the time. We saw this with the Detroit papers first. Um, they went down to publishing three or four days a week when the crisis hit because it hit them first, mm-hmm. and they managed to retain more than ninety percent of their advertising revenue. They just they just basically moved it into you know a smaller number of print editions. So that mm-hmm. makes a that makes a lot of sense. So we don't have a sort of game of um, we'd much rather you read us in one medium or another so we've got to sort of set the pricing to push you towards you know, we're not trying to preserve a print edition or we're not trying to kill off a print edition we really are um, happy to let the readers decide we charge the same for both and we'll go on doing print for as long as they want it
0: uh, I probably should have warned, uh, warned Simon before we came that your answers were, were going to be um, fascinating and also very dense. <laughs> uh, very hard to edit. Yeah, sorry about that. <laughs> I'll try to be a bit more soundbiting. Sorry about that. <laughs> no, please don't. It's, it's all really interesting. But uh, the thing that we want to talk about next there are a few of um, sort of individual um, projects that you've worked on. Yeah. But I want to just walk back to one of the things that you were saying about um, the economists... Finishability and obviously that works very well with a say print edition or the app or um, a digital edition. But how does that square uh, with you know the website? With you know it's obviously all retained on the Economist website, yeah, exactly. And you've redesigned that relatively recently. And you and uh, sort of a follow up question, and when you talk about the financial um, crisis and the way things have worked. How does you know the website, which a lot of the papers have been struggling with, um, you know the financial yeah. way of making the websites work? How is that? How are you squaring that?
2: Yeah. So two different questions there. One is the um, the question of finishability on the web, mm. and I don't think finish, the web is a different thing. So um, we have you know if we if we have something like twelve to fifteen million uniques a month on the website. We have circulation of you know one and a half to. 1.6 million on um, in, in, you know of the that subscribers uh, in you know across print and digital. So that tells you that most people using the website are not our subscribers; they are potential subscribers. So, f- to a first order approximation, uh, the website is used by non-subscribers and subscribers you know, read us in print and, and on the app. Mm-hmm. Um, and that means that the that actually in practice, subscribers do use the website for some things, but they use it in a different way. They say, "Oh, I need to you know I need to know about this. I'll come and do a search." Yeah. Um, so it's it's a different thing. So the, so we do a little bit of finishability on the website in the sense that we have a package of stories, you know, on the homepage. Uh, uh, we have you know, five things to or four things to read today at the top. Mm-hmm. Um, but essentially, the website does a different job, and um, finishability is you know not so much a, p- a part of that. It's really a sampling um, tool for people who we w- hope will become future subscribers. Um, so the
0: design must be very important then. If it is the um, the shop window, it's, it's you know presumably people's or a lot of people's first experience of The Economist. You know, how, how does that feed into your thinking about it? Particularly as, as, you know, they would, as you say, it's hard to give that idea of finishability.
2: Yes, it is. So um, it, it is tricky because you can't always put across all five of those values with every product that mm. you make. And I think one of the things that um, the website... I mean, we, we have a curated front page, so it's not just here are the most recent stories. It's like, here's what we think is important. Um, And we don't jump on, you know, we don't live blog things. We don't jump on everything. We're not a news service. We're not competing with the BBC or The Guardian or or New York Times to kind of live blog the hurricane. Um, and And I don't think people expect us to do that. Where we do really well is when there's a big event and we post, you know, two hours later, we post a big analysis of what this means. Those pieces do incredibly well because you can get the Um, minute-by-minute updates of what's really going on, and this person said this on Twitter. There are lots of places you can get that on Mm. the internet, but sort of, you know, what this terrorist attack means for the French election campaign or whatever uh, is the kind of thing that we do well and people know us for. So I think that's where we can add value on the web. I think we could do a better job of allowing our... I mean, a lot of our subscribers, you know, they're not using our website. So a lot of our journalism, which is going up on the web, is actually not getting to the the people who are paying for it. And this is because we have a very fragmented ecosystem of apps at the moment. Mm. And that's something we're moving to address. We're behind the scenes unifying all of the different kinds of content into a, a, you know, this, this sort of, there's a lot of technical plumbing that's changing around the back but essentially what that will allow us to do is to pipe all of our content uh, much more easily to a single site or to a smaller number of apps than we have now um, and we I, you know our dream is that uh, this is kind of frankly an obvious thing and if we were a startup we'd just be going straight to this point but we think that subscribers should be able to get everything that they're entitled to through a single app so that's what we're that's what we're working towards um, and at the moment if you go you know you have to use the espresso app to get espresso the Digital editions app shows you what's in the print edition, but it doesn't show you what's on the website. Uh, video isn't in either of those apps. Audio isn't in either of those apps. You know, it's well, actually the audio edition is in the digital editions app, but the podcasts aren't. So I mean, it's it's crazy, and we could just do a much better job of this. And we also think that our subscribers will like it because they'll discover that there's all this extra stuff, you know, eighteen forty three content, etc., which they're entitled to, which they. Just don't know about. Missing, it yeah. yeah, so we have to sort that out. Um, your other question was about the economics of this. Are yes. um, the majority of our revenue about two thirds of it comes from our subscribers and. Um, Not very much of the rest of it comes from advertising. And obviously the fraction that comes from advertising has been falling, like it has for everybody. But for us, the fraction was only ever about 50% at the height, which was in 2000. And in 2000, you know, it was crazy. The Economist was an inch thick. There was so much advertising. And and, uh, it was great. And we took that money while it was there. But essentially, our model is um, to be based on revenue from our readers. And uh, we have other sources of revenue. We have our B2B arm the EIU, we have various kinds of sponsorship revenue, uh, we have an event arm and so on. So advertising is there, but we can we can see it declining. And the fact that um, it's going away is not an existential threat to our business model. Whereas if you're an American newspaper, so another statistic, um, in 2008, which was the peak, the average fraction of revenue um at American newspapers that came from advertising was eighty seven percent. That was the mm. average. So, you know, for many newspapers it was north of ninety, and in some cases it was a hundred because there were free papers to be given away. So when the advertising market, you know, when thirty percent of it goes away because it goes to, to Craigslist or whatever, the classifier go away. And then when the the rest of the advertising is going to Facebook and Google as it now is, because frankly, they have the kind of advertising products that advertisers want to buy, Um, then that's a very big problem and that's why you've got this existential threat to the survival of of many newspapers. Um, But that's not something that applies to us because the majority of our revenue comes and now a growing fraction comes from our uh, subscriptions and also we're profitable, which is very, very helpful when it comes to long-term survival too.
0: Um, And presumably it also helps with... um developing innovative products you've already mentioned a few of them but could you talk us through um your virtual reality uh efforts that oh, right. the yes. projects you've just been working yeah on, yeah exactly so one of
2: me. one of the things that I I, mean, I I should emphasize i do actually still commit journalism so um <laughs> so I, I do write about you know i did a big special report on ai last year i did our recent cover on the uh the slow death of the internal combustion engine uh and so on so i do i do uh you know, still do some writing but essentially What I consider my main role to be, as well as doing that and overseeing the digital output, is really coming up with being a sort of internal entrepreneur and coming up with new products. Probably the best example of that was Espresso, which we ran as an internal startup. And I think I was in 2014. Then in 2015, I did uh, essentially Economist Films, which we started as a skunk work. So we wanted to try a different business model around video. We wanted to be able to make very, very high quality, sort of TV quality video. And that's expensive. Um, but I noticed that Vice had a very interesting model for doing it around the Creators Project so essentially we did this sort of internal startup up to, to do video on the Vice Creators Project model um, which dovetails very nicely with what we do anyway at The Economist because we very often... Do these big deals with advertisers where we sell them a mixture of printed digital ads you know corporate sponsorship white papers thought leadership and so on and video slots very naturally into that package anyway that worked and so we then integrated economist films into um, the sort of main editorial It's now it is the video department now um then last year 2016 was uh, the year that we had a go at uh, vr and um uh, vr is um you know, it's an interesting. I'm a gamer, so I'm I'm up for I'm up for trying it. But it's I'm not sure it's you know ready for for prime time just yet. Our question was how might we use it journalistically, and what might the sort of Economist tone of voice look like as a VR project? So we did a bunch of different things. The first one we did was this recreation of the Mosul Museum, mm. um, and obviously the museum when Islamic State took over Mosul, they went in and they smashed up the statues and so on. And there was this very clever. Um, non-profit that was reconstructed them using crowdsourced basically tourist photos so you get all these pictures of, the, of a statue taken from lots of different angles at different times and you put them into a, a piece of software called Photosynth and it builds a 3D model um, and they were producing these models but they didn't have the expertise to actually build a virtual museum and put, put everything into it so we said you give us the models we'll build the virtual museum and we'll release it all you know under the Economist brand name so that people will actually be able to see it Um, And so that was what we did, and um, that has won a string of awards, because the kind of very existence of that virtual museum is, uh, you know, is putting two fingers up to Islamic State and saying, you've you've smashed these things up, but we can still still see them. In fact, more people can see them than used to be able to see them. Um, And then we did a couple of other VR pieces. We did a live-action VR travel piece from Osaka, just because we wanted to try filming in you know, filming in 360 uh, we did a, a video explainer about fishing um, so you know these are the these are the sorts and then we've just most recently done one which was a um, it was about corals and, and various efforts to save corals um, and that was the first time that the VR piece tied in with a sponsored series by Economist Films So that's our business model for VR now and that's what we're offering um, sponsors of our of our Editorial films and so the films are editorially independent, but they go out, you know, with the support of a particular sponsor. So in that case, I think it was Blancpain who make watches, and they sponsored this uh, series about um, called the Deep, about the sea. And one of the uh, episodes is about corals. So we did a VR. Um, sort of side salad to that, which they also sponsored. So, um, so I'm not sure how quickly that turns into a business, or indeed whether it turns into a business. I think what the New York Times is doing in VR is very interesting. But it's just that sort of, you know, if that suddenly blows up, then we've got the experience, we've actually built things, we know what the pros and cons of different ways of doing things are, and that's sort of what's useful. And the latest thing that we've been uh, experimenting with has been, uh, has been voice assistance. We, we, uh, we had a look at machine learning a bit as well. We tried to train a deep learning network to um, to write to the style of The Economist but the problem is we haven't been publishing The Economist long enough to have a large enough corpus of text so uh, that didn't work and it produced gibberish but you know it's an interesting thing to, to, to muck around with and you know chatbots I mean there are all these I mean I love playing with these things you know I, I like I'm, uh, dusting off the um, you know the uh, programming skills Uh, that I had long ago and and it's so easy these days it's sort of like Lego bricks which snap together so um, over the summer holidays I was mucking around with a a recurrent neural network generating um, spaceship names from Ian and m Banks uh, the names of mythical Romans um, and then I also fed in the entire transcript of the Trump interview with the Wall Street Journal to produce kind of (laughs) <laughs> you know bullshit trump interview transcript <laughs> um, so that you know i just like playing with these things and that's sort of part of the part of the point that i'm mm. i'm expected to play with things and identify fun stuff and there's clearly you're, you're operating
1: on so many different fields here and so many opportunities are you conscious of any potential pitfalls almost with taking again such a such an established brand name into these new and different areas
2: yeah so there is a, obviously a risk that i mean my job is to translate the DNA or those five principles into these new um, into these new areas and sort of make sure that we don't look silly. And actually, the area where that was probably most challenging was social media because, um, you know, social media there are lots of pitfalls and you get you get lots of people in to sort of write tweets for you and do you, can you trust them to spell everything right? And you're you've got a sort of great um, danger to the to the brand. And so we had to introduce a whole load of. Um, processes around that to ensure that senior editors look at all of the tweets that go out and make sure that they don't sort of oversimplify something or get things wrong or spell things wrong or, you know, make grammatical errors uh, and so on. So that is, that's very much part of it, that sort of initial experimentation, what does our voice sound like and then how do you turn that into a process which doesn't go wrong and still reflects our editorial value. So that's, that's part of it, too. I, I mean, I'm very lucky. I have very, very good people who are good at the kind of building reliable processes from the sort of stuff held together with string that I tend to come up with when I'm um, mucking around with something. Uh, that's not something I think I'm so good at. There are there are much better sort of process and management people than me. But fortunately, we have just those people. So. Are, there,
1: are there places in the whole kind of online environment that you wouldn't take The Economist to?
2: Uh, I'm not sure. I'm not, I don't think I'd rule anything out. I'm looking at AR at the moment. I'm looking at um, news games again, because I think um, they're... I mean, the most unusual... So, so another what, thing we've done... What is done, a news game? Well, it's just... I mean, news games is just sort of a general term that covers um, trying to... Games made by news organisations that usually have some kind of uh, educational or uh, usually have some kind of thesis... Um, and, you know, I mean, you could just do it. You could do a sort of, is this headline fake news or not? Is it factual or fiction or, you know, there are various ways you could do it. Um, one of the other things we've done um, in the past year, which is I think, quite taken a lot of people by surprise, and um, to answer your question about all oh, the places you wouldn't go, I originally said, I once answered that question by saying, well, Snapchat, I really can't see how we work on Snapchat. But the CEO of Snapchat then came to visit and said, no, I think you work really well on Snapchat. And so we went on to Snapchat Discover um, in October last year. And uh, that has been, you know, very, very interesting. We've built a very large audience there. Um, and it is a sort of, that's a difficult one in the sense that, um, you know, you do have to translate the the stuff that we do, the kind of journalism we do for that audience. But at the same time, there are more uh, parallels than you might think. I mean, people say that millennials are the most liberal generation ever. And we've always espoused very liberal values. Um, and actually, a lot of the coverage that we have Uh, does work very well for that audience obviously we wrap it up in a slightly different way we have to make these animated top snaps and uh, and so on Um, but that's been a a very interesting experience and part of the reason we're there is we want to sort of challenge people's perceptions of our brands as you know the economy is only read by people who work in financial services and it's really boring and you know actually we cover, we're a global newspaper for the world. It's 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 a, a way of sort of introducing ourselves to a younger audience. But it's also very nice for Snapchat because they're trying to persuade people that they are a serious publishing platform. And they've got the Washington Post and the New York Times on there now as well. But we went on before they did. And so they really tried to sort of broaden their appeal to advertisers and say that it's not all just, um, you know, sex tips from Cosmo. I mean, there's a fair amount of that. But... Um, you know, there there is more to them than that, and makeup tips—they're very big on that as well, aren't
1: they? And following from that, a question about resources um, for this kind of news innovation or innovation within news organisations. I was um, I was an intern at the New York Times in two thousand and nine, and I remember after I was at Columbia, and I remember being taken up on the sort of last day to the sort of twenty eighth floor where they had a secret unit that was yes, kind of yes, divining the, stuff, the yep. future of news. And I remember that they had a. A keyboard that was projected in red light on a desk that you were meant to write with, and things like that. And you know, I've I've no idea if that unit still exists or anything like that. I think
2: there is a version of it. I think they are still. I think that that was the sort of. um, I mean, that was that was the height of, you know. uh, I mean, actually, it was just after the um, the crisis had hit. But um, I think I think it's good to have something like that. You've got to have some sort of forward scanning radar. Um, but you probably don't need it to be that big. I mean, ours is two people in New York, and right. we, get, we get interns in who we pay very well, but we get different interns in for every project that we do. So The, the Voice, um, we've got a very good intern working with us in New York at a called Adita, and he's built this fantastic system where you, you can, you know, essentially access the audio edition of The Economist through an Amazon Echo speaker. Um, and he's thrown that together in about six weeks, and it's you know, and it's all done in Python, and it's all running in on, on, on Amazon Cloud, and it's um, it's just brilliant. And so I don't think you need to have a sort of you know Xerox Park level organisation um, at the top of your skyscraper to necessarily keep up with these things. I mean, so much of this stuff. I mean, just if you want to get a you know, a, um, my, like my crazy you know, neural network generating stupid Roman names. I mean, that's you know, it's an hour to get that up and running on on any bog standard laptop it's not rocket science and so much of this stuff is that's what's kind of amazing about what's currently happening particularly with ai the technology is just sort of open source and sitting there and you can sort of you don't really even need to know how to program to use a lot of this stuff you can snap the bits together and experiment with it so the barriers to entry for experimentation are much lower
0: um, one of the things I should have said right up at the top was that people tend to stay um, for a very long time and I am one of the few people who <laughs> I was told when I, when I left a few years ago uh, that you'll, I'll definitely be back yes but I'm you know, sure you will but n- yeah. not yeah. quite yet um, but uh, I wanted to say obviously people stay for a long time and that is really good for the brand because you're able to have this sort of Long view of what it is that the Economist—it
2: means we have a very strong and deep culture where yes. everyone is very sort of deeply immersed in it.
0: But presumably there are dangers with that as well. If you have um, people staying for a very long time, how do you square that with um, you know diversity and, and, and kind of too much coziness?
2: Yeah, no, I, I take your point. I think um, a couple of things on that. I mean, yeah, people tend to come here and stay because we get to pick good people from you know places like the Telegraph, which are possibly less happy work environments at the moment. Um, because this is a stable, profitable news organisation, it has a very academic atmosphere. Um, you know, it's uh, it's quite unusual, uh, uh, I think, culturally. Like uh, uh, for that reason, um, I think uh, there are two ways that we kind of deal with that. The, um, the first is we move people between subjects a lot, mm. and so that's uh, you know, when you when I was at the Telegraph, the chances of the motoring editor ever being you know the uh, the Washington bureau chief were zero. Um, because that sort of mobility doesn't happen, but it does happen here. We do often take people who have, you know, never covered a particular topic and ask them to just go and cover that particular topic. Um, so there's a there's a lot of moving things around, which I think stops things getting too cosy. I think the other thing is we did have a sort of Japan problem where we had we had a very. I remember when I was running the, um, when I was running the back half. Of the Economist, so I was responsible for the business, finance, uh, economic, science pages. Um, and I was asked one year if we would like to submit anyone for a an award for the best new writer under 30, and that uh, we didn't actually have anyone under 30, um, uh, you know, covering the... I don't think we had anyone under 30 on the floor at that point. Um, And that was a real problem. and uh, It was just that we had a cohort of people, um, many of whom have retired, and we've hired a lot more young people. Uh, We do have progress to make on diversity, but we we are making progress um, in in that area. But the good thing is that um, the demographic shift that occurred made my life much easier because, those new people that we've hired come in expecting digital to be part of the job not kind of thinking oh here's an annoying new invention which makes my life harder and Mm -hmm. why why can't we go back to the way the way things were so i think that has you know from the point of view of revitalizing the culture we've still got you know relative old timers like me and we have that sort of deep cultural memory the other nice thing about it is when you you know well we need a piece on Oh, you know what artificial intelligence means in China, and or say, and then you can say, well, hang on, this person used to cover tech, and then they were in China for a bit, so they'd probably know about this. And we all, those of us who've been here for a long time, know what the previous jobs that people did were, and so you can sort of see who the right person is to, to do things. And when people are away, you know, we've still got people who know about that subject because they they that was the previous job that they did, and uh, and so on. So I think you know we we stir the pot um, in, in order to. Uh, you know keep things interesting but while also preserving our our culture
1: and obviously we're a writing podcast so this is a kind of more writerly question the we have really talked about writing No, the, the whole the whole <laughs> no byline policy, yes. um and and the the collective voice and so forth could you talk a bit about that about what what processes go into creating that voice and about what impact that has
2: on the publication as a whole and yep. what it's like to work i think the main thing it does is i mean originally the uh, the anonymity was because the whole of The Economist was written by the founder and he wanted to cover up the fact that he was the only person doing it. So it was to it was to conceal the fact that um, one person was uh, you know, what appeared to be many people was about one. And it
1: was also a cultural norm at the time, It right? was so actually, it, yes. Yeah.
2: So, so, uh, so bylights were quite unusual anyway and I would say the rest of the world moved and we, we can't say where we are. But the other thing is that we use the fact that Not having a byline, we we very often have people collaborating. Now, you get multiple bylines in lots of newspapers, but um, what having no bylines at all does is it sort of makes us all collectively responsible for everything. So if I see that you're writing a piece and you've made a mistake, I go, well, I don't care. I need need to correct you. You're the one that will look like an idiot. But if if we're all collectively responsible because there's no bylines, then I feel much more of a responsibility to help make every piece that I touch as good as it can be Um, and to, you know, point out mistakes or help people or connect people or whatever. So there is that sort of hive mind aspect of it. Um, It is the case that it was, um, you know, at times it's been hard to recruit people because, because they have to give up a byline. Now, for you people coming into the business, that's less of a problem. But certainly, we've had a couple of big-name writers come from other publications, and they haven't liked the fact that they've sort of become... They've gone off the radar. Um, Twitter helps a bit, and you can write books as well, which is sort of, you know, another way to get your name out there. But ultimately... Um, and, and in some subjects, if you're the only person covering it or you write it a particular way... I mean, I always use historical analogies, so you can usually spot my pieces because they'll they'll have historical analogies in them. And people go, oh, yes, we know who wrote that one. Um, but, you know, some people deal with that um, and some people are less happy about it so um, yeah I think the main thing is we are this is how things used to be um, there's been rampant byline inflation across the rest of the business and in fact it's got to the point where you have like picture bylines on, you know, on the ordinary news stories in some papers and that's because everyone's got a book to sell and a TV show to plug and, and so on and we've sort of stood aside from that what is the, we, we were discussing last week, what is the policy about secrecy? If someone calls
1: up and asks who's written a piece, would you tell them? Or would yeah, you? no,
2: we, we, we do, and, um, and people say on, on Twitter, um, you know, here's a piece I wrote about this, or I contributed to this piece, or whatever. There are a, c- a couple of occasions where we, where we won't do that, um, but it's usually where, for example, if you've got a piece that's very rude about the king of Thailand, mm-hmm. then you probably don't want to say who wrote it. Um, because that can cause problems for whoever it is uh, when they're subsequently travelling. So there are a, a few cases where there are sort of good reasons to um, to maintain anonymity, but uh, but they are very rare. And we don't, you know, as I say, most people in the when I cover telecoms, for example, people in the telecoms industry knew that I covered telecoms in the Economist, and if there was a piece about telecoms, I probably wrote it. So um, you know, we're not sort of actively keeping that secret, but it meant that other people could weigh in and and more people would contribute to a given story and you know I've written leaders where um, you know I write the whole leader and then um, our New York bureau chief on one occasion I remember said uh, I liked your leader but I thought this would work better as the last paragraph and he wrote a different last paragraph and I loved it so I just slotted it in and I'm not sort of you know I have no vanity about that because I haven't got a byline on it and what I ultimately want is the best piece so um, we just used his last paragraph. It was much better than mine. And um,
1: moving from that, this, you, you mentioned earlier the, the role of advocacy that the, the economist has. How do you take that in, uh, sort of that and objectivity? Where does that fit? How strong is the line, or you know the? Um, and, uh, I, well,
2: and how,
1: how does that affect both what goes in the newspapers and in the leaders? How yeah, strong yeah. is that? Chinese uh, yeah,
2: there really a. I mean, there is a bit of a distinction, but I not know. I find the American obsession with this very old. And you've been to Colombia, so you've been sort of drilled in this, but. Um, Firstly, the distinction between I mean, I, we were yeah. just joking earlier. Actually, that
1: I remember being at Columbia yeah. and um, an American saying in one of their classes how much they loved the Economist because it was so objective. And I, oh, I said, oh. "Well, it was." Well, it is. You know, I, I think it, it, it's a different
2: notion. I, 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 to the it's American. fact-based. I think is one thing. But, um, but I think American sort of classic Columbia types would not say it was objective in the sense that we have very clear biases. There very clearly things were in favour. The important thing is we're very open about what they are will say, as a liberal newspaper, you know, in a leader, um, the economist believes in la-la-la-la-la, or, you know, the economist has always stood for free trade, or, you know, it's you can usually to be honest what we're going to say about something in fact we try to not be too predictable but, but you know we, we stand for liberal values which means social liberalism um, and also uh, fiscal liberalism economic liberalism and this is um, this is difficult for people to get their heads round because that is neither left nor right and the, the left and the right are both internally inconsistent on this um, so you know we've endorsed um you know, Labour and Conservative prime ministers, we've endorsed Republicans and Democrats for president. Um, you know, people in America will go, oh, that lefty rag, The Economist, because we, su- you know, we supported Obamacare. But um, but then other people will say that we're too right-wing because, you know, we support things that are, you know, we support economic liberalism and, and uh, um, we support free and trade. that sort of
1: shifted over time, like big position points that the newspaper has
2: changed? Um, over. I don't think time. so, no. I mean, it's classical 19th century liberalism. It's yeah. essentially what it is. I mean, there were, there have been there have been things that aren't really a kind of, Liberal, the Vietnam War. There was a huge argument internally about whether, you know, what our line should be on that. And then more more recently, obviously, uh, well, there was a essentially the Foreign Department supported the war, and the the rest of the paper didn't. Um, More recently, with the Iraq War, obviously we came out in favour of it um, when it happened, but then we subsequently said that was a mistake and we shouldn't have we shouldn't have done so. So, um, you know, there are, but that that's not really something that comes from our left, right, you know, liberal, um, you know, it's a. I think in terms of sort of objectivity, the main thing is we say, here are the facts we're using to reach the reach our conclusion. And by the way, we are we are inclined to you know, lean in favor of, of liberalism. And I think that's the important thing. Um, it, so, you know, Jay, uh, what's his name? The guy, um, uh, I've forgotten his name, the, the professor at New York who, uh, who talks about the view from nowhere, um, his point is that actually people don't want sort of dry facts and uh, lack of objectivity and actually opinion is is fine and um as long as you're open about it and i think you know what irritates people about fox news is that they claim to be uh fair and balanced. exactly fair and balanced and that's obviously not the case but it's but it's the it's the fact that they're not being transparent about that that's really the problem I and mean, we, we all know what their bias is but there's it's the pretending not to have one that's sort of irritating and then anyway so uh, I... I think it's. I think people know where, where we're coming from. And there is a sort of strand of there are some readers who read us for the international coverage and sort of hold their noses when they go past the leader pages uh, because they can't. They you know they don't they don't agree with our positions you know on, on free trade or whatever. But um, but ultimately I think you know what you're getting. We tell you what we're going to give you, and that's what we did.
1: And talking about, you mentioned earlier how global you are and not having a, you know, the view from the moon. How how just does it work logistically in terms of people in which cities? How is the, the editorial staff? So
2: we have roughly a hundred journalists. Um, actually, it must be a bit more with all the video people now. But um, about half of them are here in London, and then the rest are sprinkled around. The biggest foreign bureau is New York, and then we have—I um, think we have like eight people there, or something like that. And then we have sort of a handful in DC. We have quite a big bureau in Beijing and in Shanghai. Um, we have a couple of people in um, in Delhi, and then we have sort of you know other—I think we two people in Paris. So this sort was of sprinkled around. Uh, you know, we have one person in San Francisco, one in LA. One in Chicago, so it's that you know it, it's a it's a broad network of people, and then we we do use um, freelancers quite a lot as well. And then again, that's another advantage of the anonymity, which is that we can you know if we're doing a piece on I don't know the persecution of Christians in the Middle East, we'll take a combination of files from people in different countries, and it'll all be you know put together by the foreign editor or something like uh, that.
1: Actually, just my next question with with freelancers, how does that work? And and particularly, one thing we try and do on this podcast is to be as upfront about money as possible yep. um, in terms of um, how big is that network? Who are those people? And, and how
2: does it work in terms of their... their um, so value? some of the most straightforward stringers, and they, we just pay them by the piece. Yeah. But I think increasingly we have super stringers who are paid a retainer. Um, and um, you know, so they don't need to work exclusively for us, but we do expect them to work um, you know, bring us things first and uh, we rely on people. That, and those people are very often, you know, they get business cards, they get economist email addresses and they very often become permanent hires. Uh, so that's a sort of halfway house that takes people in. So the typical trajectory is that people um, freelance for us first um, and then maybe they come work in the office for a bit or they may come and do an internship and the internships are, uh, are paid. But we sometimes sort of, you know, bring people in to show them the culture and so on and then um they might go and do a super stringing forum posting and then they might get taken onto the staff from there
0: uh, uh before we came here we were, we were discussing this because simon um once i should probably admit <laughs> no, this myself <laughs> okay. no you, you 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 know you welched on it so i'm going to tell the story now so simon once uh, wrote a story for the economist um, and uh, asked to be flown to, to the place. To Mali. Uh, to Mali. And was told I could
1: get a taxi.
0: So he, he travelled in a taxi for, for eight, four... Eight days. Eight, eight days. Yeah. Four days there, four days back.
1: Um, um, to, it was a fascinating... To, to it was a, save, to save. Yeah, it was a fascinating journey, but I was told budgets didn't extend to a flight. Oh, right.
2: So, uh, well, yeah. I, I think but, that's at the discretion of the foreigners. Yeah. Yeah, uh, yeah. <laughs>
1: yeah. That's just dropped me a bit. Yeah,
2: no. well, you know. <laughs> um, it was all about the
0: journey, wasn't it? Yeah. Um, but another thing we want to talk about, um, and actually we, the cover that we've got in front of us is, is is the one that I had in mind when we were discussing uh, what to ask you. Uh, how are you? I mean, obviously, the Economist has come out very strongly um, against uh, some of the things that Trump has has done in in the recent in recent weeks. Yeah, He had the, a very widely shared cover, which is the cover we have in front of us. Uh, with Trump and his um, megaphone, which is a you know a, a KKK hood. Um, how is The Economist fighting the problem of truth becoming ever more slippery in the era of Trump and fake news?
2: Um, well, essentially by sticking to the facts, which is, I think, what we've always done. I mean, the thing about that cover is it was the point where um, what we had tried to do up to that point was not get too... Um, Carried away with the latest crazy thing that Trump has tweeted, and because if you if you end up covering all of those things um first you haven't got room for anything else but secondly on a weekly cycle Trump says something outrageous on a Monday so you write a story about it and then he says something completely different on the Thursday by the time you come out on Friday it's irrelevant so at times in the past few months it has felt a bit otherworldly that we haven't been participating in the sort of um, Trump fest that the rest of the media have been but the fact is that there are lots of publications that are and if you want a publication that just sort of uh, bangs on about Donald Trump and how terrible he is all the time. You have a wide range to choose from. So instead, what we try to limit ourselves to is um, just commenting on, uh, you know, his actual actions and his policies. And um, you know, obviously, we we said he was temperamentally, you know, a very, very, uh, you know, not fit to be president and so on in in this edition. But um, that was a. That was the, really the first time that we'd taken that on um, as directly as that and said look this uh, this is a real this has become a problem up to that point, we were just trying to judge him on the uh, on, the, on the actual policies. And the thing is that we we violently disagree with him on the policies. I mean, in particular on trade, he wants to you know he wants tariffs and he wants to... He sees trade as a zero... I mean, it's, it's a fundamental sort of misunderstanding about how trade works, that he sees it as a zero-sum game. If China is winning, then America's losing. And the whole point about trade is if you do it right, then both parties benefit, and you have the theory of the gains from trade and so on. But Trump just doesn't see that. And I think it's because of his background in real estate. Real estate is one of the few areas where there's genuinely a zero-sum because the more you screw the people who build the buildings every dollar you don't pay them is a dollar you keep And it's very very straightforward um, and trade isn't like that at all so we kind of looked at you know his economic policy why we disagree with him um, we said we didn't uh, we didn't want him as president because we disagreed with his politics not because we thought he was a terrible person although we also thought he was a terrible person but we wanted to sort of you know uh, play the ball not the man and uh, uh, what's the departure with this cover is that his character, you know, the, 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 his refusal to condemn what happened in Charlottesville um, is the is the point where we said okay, we've we've stuck with just criticising the actual actions up to this point, but but now the character is you know is incontrovertibly a big problem, and so that was why this was a, a bit of a departure for us because mm-hmm. we, you know, we looked at what the New York Times were doing, and they have been they have done very well. Um, we, we've ha- we had a Trump bump as well. I mean, we had an amazing number of new subscriptions. Um, in fact, they peaked on the, uh, the uh, with the inauguration, yeah. and clearly, it's been a bonanza financially for the Washington Post and the mm. New York Times um, because they have taken such a strident anti-Trump position.
0: And they've sucked in like
2: blue and they've been getting all yeah, the, they've it, been reaping the benefits of the leaks. Quite, quite. So um, you know, but that's not that's not the game we've been playing. We wanted to sort of not go there and we wanted to just say look let's look at what he actually does and, look, and let's just let's be more measured about this um but with uh, with Charlottesville that was the point where we said okay we're not just going to focus on what he does we are now going to focus on who he is and um and say that we think that's you know totally unacceptable
0: well I think that's it from us thank you so much for giving us so much of your time and for uh, giving us so many insights into the inner workings of The Economist some of which were, were unknown to me having <laughs> having even worked in I've been protecting everyone's identity when I was um, editing the culture oh, right. <laughs> online culture section I was like no you definitely can't have that name you, have, you must protect everyone oh, dear. Um,
2: <laughs> So I. It's a savage been, world though in culture yeah
0: it is well you just never know uh, those book reviews um, but yes thank you so much for your time well, thank you and uh, who knows maybe, maybe colleagues again in the future if The Economist uh, you know the
2: problem about the Economist. Yes, I think so. It's, it's exactly people don't ever, ever don't leave permanently. They they go away and then they come back. So <laughs> you're doing great things with your book writing. So uh, um, you know that's that's what you're doing now. But um, I hope that one day you'll be back here.
0: We're leaving that in, in editing. Just so you. Uh,
2: thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you.
0: Thank you.
1: We hope you enjoyed that. It's us again now, back with a quick update from our lives. Cassia, what have you been up to?
0: I have been on honeymoon, which uh, was was very um, wonderful and magical, and I've been posting a whole series of very smug Instagram photos, if anyone is interested. And um, also I've been learning some new lessons from you, Simon, about um, uh, ways to be particularly... But what was it you were, you were talking about earlier?
1: <laughs> a personal organisation. Oh
0: yes, that's it. And, and what was the tip? Uh,
1: the use of a label printer. The, it should be said that Cassia has... Well, Cassia feels that I have unfairly mocked her use of coloured labels um, for some time, slash repeatedly. And we're now uh, recording this episode at my flat where she's seen that I do have um, a label printer <laughs> which I use to label various <laughs> personal possessions and belongings and I'm now never going to hear the end of this. <laughs> <laughs> um, but in other news uh, while Cassie's been on honeymoon uh, I was closing my piece for Outside and um, I uh, was closing a piece for Bleacher, Bleacher Report as well and I'm off uh, to have a meeting with my book editor about the next step uh, yeah so that's an update from us
0: This has been Always Take Notes hosted by Cassius Sinclair
1: and Simon Aikam.
0: Our producers are Olivia Craylin, Ed Kiernan, and Liz Davies.
1: Our music is by Jess Danheiser. Uh, Zara Hankir handles our social media. And our graphic design is by James Edgar.
0: And we are, of course, on a whole range of social media. You can find us on Facebook and Instagram by searching Always Take Notes. We're also on Twitter at Take Notes Always. And our website is alwaystakenotes.com.
1: And finally, uh, if you've enjoyed the show, we'd love if you could leave a review on iTunes. It really helps.
0: Thank you so much.